If you had to prove your identity, your identity, that you are who you say you are, how would you do it? For many of us, we've had to do that in recent months uh, with the real IDs and needing to fly on planes and to get into federal buildings. You have to have an idea that's, that's apparently real as opposed to fake. And you need documents to prove one's identity. If you had to testify before open court that you are who you say you are, what evidence would you use to prove your identity? Well, perhaps you might bring your social security card. You might bring your birth certificate. You might bring a picture. You might get some friends together and say, yes, this is who who they say they are? What documents would you use? What witnesses would you call? But at the end of the day, how would we really know you are who you say you are? How do we really know Steve Cooper is really Steve Cooper? We don't know. This question about identity while we deal with it on a very small level in everyday life, in the ways from proving that we're a certain age or proving uh, when we go to the doctor's office that we really are the person through this photo ID that has this insurance, or when we go to the DMV, or when we go get on an airplane, or we enter a public building. For Jesus, this was an important question as well. For the Jews, this was an important question about who Jesus was. And this morning, we're going to be entering into a courtroom in chapter 5. Where we will see before us the facts of the case about Jesus' identity. Uh, We will see the evidence put forward concerning Jesus' identity as the eternal son. And finally, Jesus himself will call a number of witnesses to testify in the case of Jesus' identity. Before we get there, I want to remind us of where we've been. Uh, We've been here in the Gospel of John now for going on five weeks. Uh, We have seen at the beginning John opening there in the first 18 verses uh, a prologue where he introduces these grand theological points which will be worked out through the narrative through the three years of Jesus' ministry. In chapters 2 through chapter 4, the primary focus of the text was on really the revelation that Jesus has come to reveal the Father's glory. And he does it through his actions and through the deeds he does. And chapter 5 here begins a new section in the Gospel of John, which goes all the way to the end of chapter 10. In this new section, the focus is on Jesus' own claims to be the Messiah and his claim to being truly God. It is this latter claim, uh, this equality with God, that will have our attention this morning. Jesus makes a radical claim. I am God. There is no one confused about this claim. And the question then, is Jesus truly God? Is is he really God or is he not? 
Naturally, such claims uh, would have been scandalous to a first century Jew. To hear a man whom they all knew where he came from, he's from Nazareth, they all knew his daddy was Joseph, claim provocatively when he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. Oh, a Jew would have heard those as, as grabs and claims. Or when he says in our text this morning, my father. You see, as Christians, we use that because Jesus taught us to talk to God in that way. But before that, that was a bit scandalous. No Jew would have called God their father. But this section also begins a conflict that has been hinted at from the beginning between God's eternal son and God's eternal people. This conflict between God's son and what was God's covenant people who wanted to kill him. How would it end? For Jesus, it doesn't end well. At least it would seem. With that in our mind, I want us to turn now to John chapter 5. If you've not done that, do that now. It's found on page 890 in the Pew Bibles, the Black Pew Bibles, 890, John chapter 5. Two comments first, read ahead, serve yourself well. Next week we'll be in John chapter 6. Read it, read it every day. Think about it. Meditate on it, and you will be ready with questions to be answered. Because of the length of this chapter, I'm just going to read to set the context with the healing of the lame man. This, this really is the, 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 the main ideas presented here and then worked out. John chapter 5, I'm going to begin in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Beth. Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalid, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But friends, the point of John chapter 5 is to put forward the identity of Jesus. John sets forward here at the very beginning of this section that stretches from chapter 5 through chapter 10, this central theme that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Now, for some of us this morning, we think, well, of course, I've known that since I was perhaps a young boy or young girl. I, I know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. But here in this passage, John puts forward the argument that Jesus is fully God and therefore has authority over life and death. If Jesus truly is God, then Jesus really has authority over life and death. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath because he is the Lord of all. And so the purpose of our time really is is to encourage us to worship Jesus as the one true and living God, and to ensure our faith is in him, a faith we'll see that leads to eternal life. Now, if you're like me, I always look for key verses. One verse that sort of summarizes everything. One verse that sort of puts the whole chapter together. Well, that summary really comes first in verse 18, the conflict, right? The conflict verse where where John says this is why they wanted to kill Jesus. Because he was breaking the law and he was claiming that him and God were equal. This was scandalous. This was was outrageous. But even that's not the key verse. The key verse actually comes in verse 24. If you look there at verse 24, look, look here. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. Whoever hears my word and believes him, that is the Father, who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. You see, verse 24 is like a breadcrumb. John leaves these little breadcrumbs throughout the entire gospel to carry you along all the way to the conclusion, which is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And so the key idea that we want to think this morning about, is Jesus truly God? And to do that, I've organized this in a courtroom. I think this naturally organizes itself in this way, so I wanted to to sort of follow it. First, in verses 1 through 18, uh, we see the charges in the case of Jesus' identity. In other words, we see two charges levied against Jesus. Number one, that he is a lawbreaker, And that he is making himself equal with God. He's a blasphemer. So to think about this negatively, we could say the charges against Jesus is that he is a lawbreaker and he's a blasphemer. Because he's making himself equal with God. Well, in response to this, Jesus provides evidence of his identity. So if you have your Bibles open, if you look there, verses beginning in verse 19... Through verse 29, uh, we see a number of evidence put forward in the case of Jesus' identity. We'll, We'll see three pieces of evidence that prove that Jesus is truly God. And then third and finally, we'll see the witnesses that Jesus calls. And Jesus calls to his account four witnesses to prove his identity. 
four witnesses that prove his identity. Well, first, let's consider the charges of Jesus' identity. And these charges are connected uh, to who he really is. Two charges, lawbreaker and blasphemer. Uh, We saw them there in verses 17 and then again in verse 18. Before we get that, let's understand what happened. John uses the story here of Jesus healing the lame man to sort of lay the uh, theological foundation, to prime the pump, if you will, in the mind of the reader, to prepare them for what Jesus is going to say to these religious leaders. We're told in verses 1 through 9 that a lame man was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath. If you were listening, the word Sabbath kept kept coming up over and over again. And and what John is doing here, if you're reading, is like, Jesus just healed a guy, and what you're worried about is the Sabbath? In other words, Jesus demonstrated what the Sabbath was all about. Dummies, how come you couldn't figure that out? What Jesus does in healing the lame man is what the Sabbath in the law pointed to. In other words, Jesus' actions of healing this lame man was a foretaste of what the Sabbath would ultimately bring, a Sabbath rest, where we would rest from all of our work and all of our labors in the new heaven and new earth. Well, before we get there, we we are told that, that there was this sort of pool, a gathering place for the disabled, um, This was a place that you probably wouldn't have gone. This is where all the societal rejects hung out. These were where all the unclean, all those who lived a life of isolation, very similar to the way we deal with those who are uh, on the fringe of society. We, we tend to relegate them. We don't want them around. We, we don't want to see them. And, and so here we are told that they're gathered here in one particular place. Notice there in verse 3 who these individuals are. They're blind, lame, and paralyzed. This was, if you will, a sick hospital. Now, many of you might be asking, well, where, if you're looking at your Bible, uh, if you were paying attention as I read, uh, there's a verse missing. Verse 4 is missing. Oh no, they deleted a verse of the Bible. Not at all. Many of the oldest manuscripts of this particular verse does not contain verse verse 4. It was added later. But but you'll see there in verse 7 a sort of testimony uh, to what maybe that verse was alluding to. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps before me, in other words, what they thought happened, they thought this little pool that was like kind of calm water. And then all of a sudden it would kind of start bubbling up as like a jacuzzi. They thought if I got down in the jacuzzi, I would be healed. And perhaps there was some medicinal purposes behind it, or, or perhaps legitimately people had gone into the water and come out and were healed. And this is why all of these folks are sort of gathered around this pool. And it's this sort of really discouraging scene, right? Friends, this is like going uh, not to the doctor's office, but it's like going to the ICU. Just imagine just walking around. If you've ever been in the ICU or had family, I mean, it is a dreadful place. It is not a place you want to be. All the constant beeping and ventilators going off, it's it's just ah, nerve-wracking. And in this picture here that Jesus is in is a picture of death and sadness and 
These folks have no hope. It's a place of hopelessness. More than that, we are told in verse 5 that this invalid has been there for 38 years. Now, we don't know if this has been from birth or, or perhaps he's much older, but, but for 38 years, he has, this is where he's lived. To make matters worse, every time he tries to crawl his way into the pool, other people knock him out of the way and get down the water before he can get down in there. But then he meets Jesus. And the point of the passage here isn't that Jesus has come to heal everyone. I I, want to just point out a a couple things here to help your theology of Jesus' first coming. Notice here that Jesus bypasses the blind, that Jesus bypasses the paralyzed, that he heals only one man that day. Jesus could have healed everyone in that pool, but see, Jesus didn't come to heal. Jesus came to usher in a new kingdom in which there would be healing in the end. Secondly, I want to point out here that that this healing did not come by faith. In other words, this man doesn't have faith in Jesus. In fact, he rats Jesus out at the end. Nowhere are we described about this man's faith. And so just because you have faith doesn't mean you're going to be healed. But rather, the point of the passage is about Jesus declaring to the world that the Messiah has come, that he has power and authority to do only what God can do. But the point is taken up really there in verse 8 and 9. Jesus says to the man, get up. Take up your bed and walk. Look, I, I don't know about y'all if you have kids. Um, I tell them to get up all the time. They just stay there. But when Jesus says, get up, they get up. A man who's laid there crawling his way in and out of that pool for 38 years gets up, not in a few minutes, not when he had the physical strength, but rather instantaneously. Anyone who's ever been around anyone who has been paralyzed temporarily knows that you don't regain it instantaneously. What do you do? You go to rehab, right? You got to learn how to walk again. You got to learn how to put one foot in front of the other again. No, this guy who has not walked in 38 years instantaneously gets up, picks up his bed, and takes off. It demonstrates the power of Jesus. Again, Jesus does it with a word. He doesn't even touch the man. Similarly to the way he turns water into wine or heals the the royal official's son there at the end of chapter 4, he does it with a word. Well, naturally, the Jews are very frustrated, but it's not because of what Jesus did, but it's when Jesus did it. We are told that the Jews are infuriated to see a man walking in the temple area with his bed, with his mat rolled up. He's walking around. They're like, you know, they were sitting there eyeing out, looking for people. They were they were looking for the lawbreakers. And there came one. They go to him quickly. Who told you to get your bed together and to take walking? And, and he's like, I don't know who did it. I don't know who did it. All I, all I know is that I've been laying there for 38 years, and the dude told me to get up, and all of a sudden I could get up, and so I did it. And notice here in the passage the thing that's missing is the marvel of the, guy, uh, of the Jews that the guy is walking 
The guy just told me to get up and walk, and I did. But they don't ask how it happened. All they care about is that their law was broken. Now, to be very clear, what was the big deal? Was Jesus really breaking the law? In other words, was he really breaking the Sabbath law that forbid someone from picking up their bed? Not at all. What the Jews did was they put laws around the laws so they didn't break the law. It's sort of like bowling. You know, when you go bowling, if you're like me, you're not very good, and so you got to get those little bumpers put out. You know those little things are for kids? Right, you put the bumpers out so you don't get in the, in the gutter, you don't have a gutter ball. Here's what the Jews did. The Jews said, no, we ain't even going to bowl. If I, if I don't bowl, then, I can't, then I'm not going to get the ball in the gutter, right? If I don't ever actually throw the ball into the lane, then I can't break the law. That's what they're doing. They're putting hedges around the law. They're not even participating in the Sabbath because their laws have prevented it. This is what Jesus is after. You see, the law was about mercy, but they were about legalism. They were about following God through obeying rules rather than living by faith. And they are furious. For which Jesus responds there in verse 17 that my father is working until now and I am working. What Jesus here is saying isn't that the Sabbath was a bad law. But what Jesus is claiming here is that he has authority over the Sabbath. Here is the point. The Sabbath was created by God as good to foreshadow what his son would usher in in the new heaven and new earth. In other words, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we enter into eternal life, we enter into the Sabbath rest. As Christians, we do not observe the Sabbath. Why? Because this morning, we believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that new life has already begun. Therefore, we right now are already enjoying the Sabbath rest that Jesus has inaugurated. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to demonstrate his authority over life and death. Well, this becomes apparently clear in his comment that he makes that I passed over. Notice there in verse 14, this is perhaps if you know this story well, this is one verse that's troubled you a bit. Jesus found the man, the the lame man that he had healed in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now perhaps this is a reference to the cause of the man's infirmity. In other words, perhaps some past sin 38 years earlier, had led to the man's infirmity. And that's a possibility. Of course, there are many sins that we commit that inflict uh, suffering on our bodies, right? Think about the things we drink or the things we put and the things we do, right? If I'm going to drive recklessly, sinfully, uh, there are consequences of that. So perhaps, but more likely... Given the context of what Jesus is saying, and in light of this argument about the Sabbath, and also Jesus' reference to future judgment, 
later here in the chapter. So considering the context of what the Sabbath pointed towards and what Jesus will reference, that this is a reference to the fallen nature of man and the need for redemption lest a worse judgment happens. Here's the thing. These things, these broken aspects of the world we live in is a result not of our particular sin but as a result of sin generally i made reference this earlier cancer exists in this world not because of our own personal sin but because of the fallenness of this world because of that these things have entered the end of the world and so jesus here is saying look you could be healed friend from this physical ailment, this outward ailment, but if you don't have saving faith in Jesus, a worse judgment is coming. This worse judgment would be internal damnation, separated from God. And so Jesus will make reference in the context of this chapter that what he is after here is encouraging this man to repent and believe in Jesus as the Messiah, that if he persists in unrepentant sin, that he will die in his sin. And so the charges against Jesus is that of a lawbreaker and that of making the claim of equality with God, which is what John summarizes here in verse 18 this is this was why the jews were seeking all the more to kill him so so it wasn't just that he was breaking their law but that that he was breaking the sabbath but that he was even calling god his own father making himself equal with god the jews were not confused about what jesus was you know it's fascinating how even folks today like uh, jehovah witnesses can be confused about a point like this I mean, first century Jews knew what Jesus was claiming. Jesus was claiming to be God. Not a little g God, but the one true and living God. This verse here makes that emphatically clear. The charges brought against us. But friends, these facts of the case are undisputed. The Jews wouldn't dispute them, nor would Jesus. Jesus healed a man who was lame on the Sabbath. And by doing so, he was claiming to have authority over life and death. He claimed in this healing a unique relationship with the Father. As we consider this, what evidence do we see that Jesus is truly God? Well, verses 19 through verse 29, 19 through 29, we see three pieces of evidence. I want to show them to you very quickly. First, Jesus does what only God can do. Jesus does what only God can do. Verses 22 through 24, Jesus receives honor that only God deserves. We sing a lot of songs about Jesus today. And if Jesus isn't God, then every one of us are blasphemers. The third piece of evidence we see in this passage is that Jesus has power only God can claim. Jesus has power that only God has claim on. Well, in verses 19 through 21, we, we see this. Jesus has one of his truly statements, truly, truly. In other words, he says, listen, listen, pay attention, pay attention. Get your eyes on me here, he says. I say to you, the Son of Man, or the Son, rather, can do nothing of his own accord. In other words, he can't do anything on his own. 
that there is a relational uh, connectivity between the Father and the Son. That he can only, but only, what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus here reaches out and claims that he does what only God can do. That, that if you would pay attention, he says, to what my activity is. If you would just watch my actions and my works and my words, you would see that I am doing things that only God can do. And you know that. Who but God could turn water into wine? Who but God could speak? Not even be in the same zip code and a man be healed. Who but God could take a man, not even touch him, just speak a word, and he's healed from, from being an invalid for 38 years? Who but God could speak to the tomb of Lazarus, say, get on out here, buddy, and he walks out? Of course, this is what Jesus is pointing towards here. He says, greater things than these I will do. You thought this was cool? You thought this was amazing? You, you, you were blown away by water turned to wine? Well, watch this. Let's go out to the cemetery and see what happens. So that you will marvel, he says. You see, Jesus' activity is connected to the Father. Jesus has come, as we've already indicated, to reveal the Father's glory. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to reveal the Father's glory by doing what the Father does. While there is a hierarchy, a, a relational subordination of the Son to the Father. In other words, the Son doesn't do anything. He, there's no rogue Son. He only does what the Father does. Jesus here is claiming divinity. He is claiming that he is truly God. Furthermore, we see in this passage that there is a distinct characteristic between the Father and the Son. That they're not the same. One of the errors, uh, one of, the errors of church history is the error of modalism. That is that, 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 God, that, that Jesus is just an actor on a stage putting on a different mask. And that God works by putting on the mask of the Father and the mask of the Son and the mask of the Holy Spirit. But they're really all the same. Friends, this is why do not give in to the temptation to use illustrations for the Trinity. All right? Just avoid them. Just use the Bible and just leave it at that. There is a mystery in the Godhead. And, uh, and frankly, there's a lot of church history that you're going to stumble into, a lot of errors, a lot of heresy that you'll stumble into if you start giving in to water, steam, and ice, and all that other stuff. Don't do it. Stay away from it. We see here that Jesus does what only God can do. Secondly, the second piece of evidence we see begins there in verse 22, that Jesus receives honor that only God deserves. Notice what he says here. The Father judges no one. Oh, Really? But he has given all judgment to the Son. Well, friends, if you've read your Old Testament, you know that's frankly not true. Unless 
the Father has. Why has he done that? Verse 23. So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, I mean, if you know your Bible at all, Jesus here is making probably, perhaps, one of the most radical statements he ever makes. Consider this as one piece of of evidence, one example. Among many that we could look at. Isaiah 48, verse 11. God says this. For my own sake. In other words, for my own honor. For my own honor, I do it. That is, save people. For how should my name be profaned? Listen. My glory I will not give to another. From Genesis 1-1 through the end of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the point is clear. God does not share the throne. Not with you, not with me, not with any man. But yet Jesus says here that he has come, that the Father has sent him so that we might worship the Son. Friends, you heard that in that scripture reading there in Philippians chapter 2, didn't you? That therefore God has given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and in earth. You mean the angels in heaven and we humans will bow before Jesus and worship him? Yes. Friends, this piece of evidence should be sufficient alone to demonstrate understanding how God acted in the past and how he continues to act that he shares no throne with any Therefore, Jesus must be God. John Calvin said this, that Muslims and Jews give the God they worship beautiful and magnificent titles. However, we should remember that whatever God's, whenever rather, God's name is separated from Christ, it is nothing more than empty imagination. You see, other world religions talk high about Jesus. They talk high about God, but they would never, never, ever put Jesus in the category of God. As I said earlier this morning, if Jesus be not God, when we, then we are all condemned for blasphemy, every one of us. And I hope this evidence is ensuring you that Jesus truly is the eternal God. Well, final, this final uh, piece of evidence, if you will, verses 25 through 29. Jesus, again, his third truly, truly, verily, verily statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Here, listen, here's the key. And he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who hear the tomb, who, who are all, rather, in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What is Jesus' point? That Jesus has power that only God can claim. I mean, things like speaking to dead and them coming to life. Uh, 
the authority that God has over life and death, over judgment, over declaring who is right before God and who is condemned. Jesus says here in verse 27 that is because he is the Son of Man. Jesus uses a loaded word, a buzzword, a word that every Jew that day would have known and heard and their ears would have tingled and they would have known. Because you see, their favorite prophet was the prophet Daniel. They loved the prophet Daniel. And Daniel prophesied about a time in the life of Israel, a person who would come, the son of man. And Daniel had a vision one night when he was in a faraway land in Babylon. He, he saw a picture of heaven. In Daniel chapter 7, he tells us, he says this, And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothes was white as snow, and his hair and his head were pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousands times ten thousands stood there. Billions of people. Billions of angels worshiping. And the court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. Daniel saw the future. A future judgment. And later in that chapter, he, he records that he saw that night. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Here's that word, son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and presented before him. And to him, that is the son of man, was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve the son of man. And his dominion be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming divine power and authority from the throne of God and saying, I am the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I am the Alpha and the Omega. By claiming that title, he is claiming to be the one who is ushering in this eternal kingdom. For Jesus is the one true and living God. This is why Jesus says there in verse 28 and 29, not to marvel, not to wonder, because he is the one who will usher in at the end of the ages. And one just encouraging thing you could do this afternoon is open up the book of Revelation in chapter 1 and look at the description of Jesus there and compare it to the description given in Daniel chapter 7 and then let your mind glory and wonder of the God made flesh. Well, finally here this morning, I want us to look here in our final time together, three or four witnesses in the case of Jesus' identity. Very quickly, let's look at them. There are four witnesses that Jesus calls to prove that he is who he says he is. The first witness in the case is God the Father. In chapter 5, verses 30 through 32, he says this, I can do nothing of my own accord. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, any novice reader could understand that he's referencing the Father. The Father has sent him. Notice what he says about the Father. If, if I bear witness about myself, my, my testimony is not true. He's like, if I'm just walking around telling you these things, you wouldn't believe me. 
But here's my first witness, he says. Let me call him. There is another who's, who bears witness about me, and I know that his testimony that he bears about me is true. In other words, he's referring to the Father. He says, I know somebody in heaven who could come down right now and tell you that, that I am who I said I am. Well, later there in verse 37, notice what he says about the Father. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. In other words, Jesus here is saying, if you don't believe who I am, then you don't believe the one who sent me. And if you don't believe the one who sent me, then you're not ever going to trust my testimony. Isn't that true? If you don't trust somebody, you're not going to believe their eyewitness testimony. If you don't really believe, and you know, you know that person always tells the lies. If you think, and they tell you something, you're like, I don't know about that. I don't believe them. They're not trustworthy. And so Jesus is saying, here, you don't trust God the Father, therefore you don't trust me. Of course, the Father did bear witness, didn't he? On the Mount of Transfiguration, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, God says to his disciples, Behold my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father testified from heaven that this is the Son of God. Well, the second witness, the witness we've already really experienced, haven't we, in John's gospel is, the, is John the baptizer, John the Baptist. They're in 34 and 35. Or rather, verse 33, you sent to John and he bore witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, which then he goes and references back to the father. Two witnesses so far, God, the father, I mean, right there is enough. And secondly, John the Baptist, someone who was respected, someone who was righteous, someone who wasn't living on the fringes of society, but one who was known by all, one who even attracted people in his ministry. You heard John's witness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus brings to us a third witness in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says, look around, open your eyes, see the things that I'm doing. My works testify. But friends, this is exactly John's point. You see, remember, this section is seething and, 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 or uh, rather just filled uh, with signs of the Messiah. The water to wine, the, the healing of the royal official, the healing of the lame man, uh, later the healing of the blind man, the feeding of the 5,000. All of these miraculous signs, works, prove Jesus' identity. The final witness we see here stretching here in the latter half of the, this chapter, the end of this chapter, taking up to the end, is the scriptures. That the scriptures are a testimony to Jesus that he is who he says he is. So in verse, verse 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. 
You know, the scriptures Jesus is referencing there is the Old Testament, and particularly the law, the writings of Moses. And so Jesus here puts forth a very strong argument that Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. You heard that in the, re- the scripture reading from Luke 24, when Jesus was teaching the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opened the scriptures and he, and he said, all of this is about me. They testify to me. Finally, here we see that in reference to Scripture is the one who wrote the Scripture, Moses. He's like, hey, if you, I mean, if you're not convinced by Moses, you're not, you're not really a follower of Moses. Because when Moses wrote, he spoke about me. Look here at verse 45. Do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses... You would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Oh, friends, marvel at that truth. Christians, stop reading only your New Testament. The Old Testament is just as much about Jesus as the New. That's what he just said. He wrote of me, for if you believed his writings, how will you believe my words? And then follows chapter 6 where Jesus will prove that he is the greater Moses. For just as Moses fed the Israelites in the wilderness from manna from heaven, so the true bread from heaven has come to feed the nation of Israel. Friends, these are the eyewitnesses. And it's hard to get any eyewitness to agree, isn't it? But every one of these testifies to the truth that Jesus is the one true and living God. We've considered the charges that Jesus is the Son of God, who is fully God and has authority over life and death. We've seen the evidence, Jesus doing things that only God can do. We're being worshipped. Only God deserves worship. But yet the New Testament again and again tells us to worship Jesus. We've seen Jesus has the authority that, that every name under heaven and earth is to worship and venerate him. And we see that he has power. He sits on the throne and we've heard these witnesses. What is your conclusion this morning? Is Jesus the one whom he claimed to be? Friend, I want to conclude by making four very quick points. And we'll conclude. Number one, you can't properly interpret scripture without Jesus. Without Jesus, your Bible is never going to make sense. If Jesus isn't truly God, then your Bible is going to be a mess. You can't love God without Jesus. Verse 42 says, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his known name, you would receive him. You can't say you love God. And not honor Jesus as fully God. You can't honor God without Jesus. You you can't give God glory. You, friend, cannot worship God if Jesus isn't a part of that worship and central to it. And fourth and finally, the point I want you to think hard about this morning. Is Jesus says that you cannot avoid judgment without him. Do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you. 
Friends, this morning, if you do not have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you will face judgment. Brother, sister, turn from your sins and trust in him today. He is the true and living God. We have the hope of the resurrection with Jesus. And without him, we have no hope at all. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that we might know you better through your word and for your glory. We're reminded this morning that it was in the breaking of bread before your two disciples that you opened their eyes to see your glory. This morning I pray that maybe a brother or sister this morning whose eyes have been shielded by sin, maybe because of the lack of faith or doubt, that in the breaking of bread, the reminder of the shed blood of Christ, that they would again have hearts burn within them. I pray this morning that as we partake, maybe the non-Christian who's looking on this morning would see the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ spilt. And their eyes too would be open and see that Jesus is the true and living God and that they would turn and believe upon him. Father, we do marvel at the sending of your son. Jesus, we marvel at the new life you've given us, the resurrection of life. Holy Spirit, we marvel in the new birth where you have breathed life where there is death. And so we pray that your will be done for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.